The title of this morning's message is, Does God Spank His Kids? This morning I want to talk to you about how God disciplines His kids. Does He spank or scourge believers? Does He send sickness, poverty, or calamity as a means of disciplining His children? Many believers, and even more scholars, <laughs> believe that He does. And before I understood the separation of covenants, I too believed that bad things came to me because of my sins or bad decisions as God's discipline in my life. I thought God allowed bad things to happen to me because I needed to learn a lesson. <laughs> but does that idea really hold up under the new covenant reality of how God deals with people and in particular his kids? I don't believe so. And I hope that today's message will help you to trust in God's goodness and loving kindness when various difficulties arise in our lives. The first thing we need to understand when addressing the subject of discipline is what does the word discipline actually mean? <laughs> so I looked it up in Webster's 1828 dictionary and there are five definitions. And then what they usually do is they put the most prominent on first and then work their way down as far as usage. So the first one is, to instruct or educate, to inform the mind, to prepare by instructing in correct principles and habits, as to discipline a youth for a profession or for future usefulness. I translated that into training to prepare and equip for the future. Does that sound scary? Does that sound like God's going to beat the living daylights out of you? <laughs> no. Discipline is primarily to instruct and educate for future success. It has nothing to do with pain. <laughs> Second most important definition, to instruct and govern, to teach rules and practice, and accustom to order as, and subordination, as to discipline troops or an army. So I translated that into training to prepare for battles and difficulties. There's no spanking in there. <laughs> Preparing someone for battles and difficulties does not include spankings. The third one, to correct, to chastise, to punish. Now see, here's where a lot of people go, okay, see, God's going to hurt you. He's going to hurt you. <laughs> but chastise just means to correct. It's just another definition of the first word. And sometimes, like with children, we do not only correct their thinking, but we add a little deterrent. <laughs> but for adults, it just simply means to correct their behavior. It means to correct, and correct means to set right. When God corrects us, he's correcting mostly what we think and what we believe. The fourth one is to execute the laws of the church on offenders with a view to bring them to repentance and reformation. Unfortunately, the church has done a really bad job at this <laughs> overall. Instead of training people who are walking in ways that will hurt them, the church has often condemned them and told them, go and get your life right and then come back. Jesus never did that. He never. So what the church is meant to do is to train to bring forth the right beliefs, training to correct wrong beliefs, because right believing will produce right living. And the last one is to advance and prepare by instruction. In other words, to be successful. God, when we talk about discipline, is training us to walk in success. That's his point. He wants us to win. He wants us to always win. <laughs> he wants us to always overcome. He wants us always to succeed. That is his best plan for us. But sometimes in order to get there, he has to train us up front. So, from these definitions, we can see that the primary definition of discipline is training, not spanking, <laughs> not punishment. When we think about the word discipline, we normally jump all the way to punishment instead of training. I think that's because when we think of discipline, we normally think of trying to correct a child's naughty behavior. <laughs> if we look at Proverbs 13.24, it says this, the very famous scripture, he that spareth his rod hateth his son, but he that loveth him chastiseth him betimes. The word betimes, let's start with that, refers to rising up early in order to correct. If you don't speak 
Old English, <laughs> Old King James English, you might think, well, he must chastise him over and over and over again. It's <laughs> not what it says. <laughs> be times refers to something that's done early. So it would be better understood as correcting a child early in his life. And that makes much more sense when you realize that most people understand this scripture as proof of God's approval of spanking. It doesn't actually or necessarily mean that, but of course it could include that. Spanking is something that is really only effective on small children. As a parent, when my children were little, I would give one of my strong-willed children, who insisted on doing what I said not to do, a swat on the fully padded and diapered behind. <laughs> that was often all that was necessary to deter one of my very young children you're saying diapers, you're saying, you know, two-ish, <laughs> from repeating an offense. But it wasn't because it hurt them so badly. It hurt their feelings. <laughs> you smile a little bit, no, 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 stove hot. <laughs> no, 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 light sockets, bad. <laughs> Back in the day, we didn't have all those little plastic plugs. <laughs> so it was just a simple deterrent, because little ones want their parents' approval. So a little swat on the butt was just, oh, you don't like what I did. And they fall apart and you're like, yes, thank you. <laughs> I'm trying to make you safe. <laughs> but as my children grew a little older and they knew the difference between right and wrong, the spanking became a more painful way of deterring them from repeating a willful disobedience. When a little bit older, you know, they're biting, <laughs> they're whacking their sibling with a board, you know, all kinds, of stabbing them with pencils. Something must be done <laughs> for the safety of the children. And so I would afflict their little behinds with some pain. But I found out very quickly that they quickly outgrew that. They would start begging me for spankings instead of consequences. Give me a spanking, give me a spanking. No, you're going to be grounded to your room. No, you're not going to the movies. No, you can't go to your friends. Oh, just give me a spanking, please, please, please. <laughs> no, no, because <laughs> that spanking doesn't cause your heart to change. You see, when they were little, their heart would change. Their heart would get out. Oh, mommy and daddy don't like that. Little ones care. Middle-sized ones don't care. <laughs> don't care if mama's happy or not. <laughs> don't care. <laughs> and then you get into that teenagers, and that's a whole nother thing. <laughs> By the time a child is between 7 and 10, spankings do not work at all. You've got to find a better way to cause them to understand that there are consequences to every action. Now, as a parent, it was my job to teach my kids that there was always a consequence to their actions. Always. Always, always, always. That means you can't let them get away with nothing. <laughs> I had a, a nephew that I was raising. He came to us. He was a very troubled young man. And I took him to a counselor because I had no idea how to fix what was all wrong with him. <laughs> the counselor said, you can't let him get away with anything. You see, sometimes we want to say, oh, it's okay. I changed my mind, you don't have to have a consequence. But what this counselor told me was that if you let a child off once, <laughs> they're gonna think, hmm, mama's easy, <laughs> or daddy's easy, and they'll start weighing. Maybe I won't get a spanking. Maybe I won't get grounded. Maybe they'll never find out. They only have to get away with it once for them to make it worth it. So, <laughs> there always has to be a consequence with training, with children. Not with adults, but with children. And one of the reasons we do treat our children that way is because that's the way our world works. Let's face it, the world doesn't work by grace. Grace is very contrary to the way this world works. This world says, if you do bad, we will beat the living daylights out of you. They say, if you do good, we will give you blessings and favor. But you have to earn it. And that's the way this world works. Out in the world, if our children go to get a job, they have to know that working will be involved. <laughs> that they're not going to pay you to sit around and talk on your phone. <laughs> they have to understand that the way the world works in order for it to be successful in this world. Back to our scripture, Proverbs 13, 24. He that spareth his rod hateth his son, but he that loveth him chastiseth him betimes. Now the word translated chastiseth 
in the Hebrew is the word musar in the Strong's Concordance. And that means properly, properly means in the strictest sense, it means chastisement. Figuratively, it means to reprove, to warn, or to give instruction. Also, it can mean restrain, bond, chastising, chastiseth, and chastisement. It means to check, to correct, correction, discipline, doctrine, instruction, and rebuke. It, that's all the ways this one word can be translated. But throughout the Old Testament, this word is translated 30 out of 50 times as the word instruction. You see, normally when we think chastisement, we think of something very painful. <laughs> if we go to the boss's office and he chastises us, oh, we're not happy. <laughs> we don't look at that as training, even though that is usually the intent. On most of the places this is translated instruction, it's in the Proverbs. And if you look at Proverbs, Proverbs is about training. Training believers, training children, training us in the ways of righteousness. I do have a few examples of this outside of Proverbs. The first one is in Job 36, verse 10. And it's speaking of God, and it says, He openeth also their ear to discipline. Same word. Musar. Same word chastises, same word discipline. Same word instruction. So he says, so God opened also their ear to discipline, to instruction, to training, and commandeth them that they return from iniquity. Psalms 50, verse 17 says, and this is God speaking, seeing thou hatest instruction and castest my words behind me. Discipline, instruction, chastisement. How? You see any boards here? You see any whips here? No. What is he using? His words. Proverbs 1 and 2, to know wisdom and instruction, same word, to perceive the words of understanding. No whips, no scourging, no paddles, just words. Proverbs 8, 33, hear instruction, instruction, discipline, chastisement, all the same word. Hear instruction and be wise and refuse it not. It's words. God disciplines his children, trains his children, corrects his children, not with boards, not with paddles, but with words. My point is, I want you to see from these scriptures that the word discipline and instruction are essentially the same thing. It is we who put the emphasis on pain, not the word. <laughs> My point is that when God corrects his children, he uses words, not rods. God does not treat us like small children who need spankings. He treats us like full-fledged adopted adult sons. We are all sons of God. If you are male or female, you are a son. Because this refers to our authority and position in Christ. We have the same power and authority as the son at the right hand of the father. Because that's where we are. He has taken us and put us in him and seated us there. Now we too are sons. We have full power and authority, same as Jesus. And that's why he calls us sons, not children. When he calls us sons, he's talking about, this is who you are, this is your identity. <laughs> you need to know what I have placed you into and what has been placed into you. We, yes, we are all born of him as offspring. We are his dearly loved children. But we are not treated like toddlers who need to be swatted or a young rebellious child that needs a spanking. Our father treats us as adult sons, not as a small child who doesn't know right from wrong, nor does he treat us like a criminal or a disobedient slave who has knowingly earned a severe punishment. You see, it was only slaves and criminals that received beatings and scourgings, not children not children of their father. The father didn't beat his kids. He might beat his slave, but he would never beat his own son. The father trains us, grows us, and teaches us through his written word and the Holy Spirit, not by bringing physical pain and suffering into our lives. Now, that being said, that doesn't mean we sometimes don't bring physical pain into our lives. <laughs> That's the way the world works. <laughs> sometimes we make bad decisions or we have bad habits that eventually cause us hurt. But that is not God punishing us. It is simply the fruit or the produce of what we plant. That is the sowing and reaping 
that God speaks of. It's the sowing and the reaping. Galatians 6, verses 8 and 9 say this, For he that soweth to his flesh, and the flesh being that which is natural, natural thinking, natural acting, the natural world, <laughs> the way the world thinks, that's natural, that's flesh. He that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. Now that's really good if, it's, if you're sowing to the Spirit. <laughs> if you're sowing to the flesh, that's not necessarily good news. <laughs> you will reap. That's the thing. That's why this is in there. He's like, um, this works for the good and for the bad. And we can fall into natural thinking, natural believing, our unbelief, believing what the natural realm, the world says, over and above what our Father says. I loved what worship was this morning. It was, what does God say? <laughs> what did God say about this? Because he knows what he's talking about. The context of chapter 6 in Galatians is actually the body of Christ taking care of the body of Christ by bearing one another's burden and thereby fulfilling the law of Christ, which is love. Bearing someone's burden is to help them in their time of need, especially when something is overwhelmingly heavy for them. He goes on to say that the spiritually strong should help those who are weak without comparing their strength to someone else's weakness. He says that the strong should be careful not to think that they are above needing help themselves. <laughs> Sometimes we say, I don't need to go to the doctor. <laughs> I'm strong. And God's like, go to the doctor. <laughs> and it goes on. Or above giving help to others. Sometimes when we are strong in a certain area, we expect everybody else to be strong in, in the same area. Mark and I were talking yesterday. He is gifted for evangelism. He goes to Walmart. He gets somebody saved. He goes to McDonald's. He gets somebody saved. <laughs> Everywhere he goes, he's getting somebody saved. Never works that way for me. <laughs> I don't have that particular gifting. Now, you get somebody who needs prayer. God works differently with me. But what happens is when somebody's really strong in their gift, like Mark, it is the temptation to say, y'all are lazy. <laughs> y'all should be out there getting people saved just like me. See, that's spiritual pride. <laughs> and he says, if you're strong, you have to be careful not to fall into that. He goes on to say that, of course, everybody has their own responsibilities, but that's not an excuse from helping others. That's a, such a good excuse, though. <laughs> I have so much to take care of, Jesus. I can't possibly help the neighbors. <laughs> Bearing the burdens of others, walking in love. Sometimes our flesh doesn't like it at all. And that's his point. <laughs> that is his point. So he goes on to encourage believers to also take care of those who teach the word by supporting them financially so that preaching the word doesn't become a financial burden. This is a real thing. I didn't make this up. <laughs> this is a real thing. Churches are closing every single day because they have no support. Most of the pastors in America are bivocational, just like Mark. Churches can't afford to pay the pastor a living wage. And so that can be a real burden. And it begins with falling on the pastor, but it ends up falling on the people because then they end up losing their church. And so he's telling them, walk in love. You see, when you give into the offering, you're giving to Jesus, but you're also demonstrating love for the teachers. You're saying, we love you enough to help you. Maybe can't help you a lot, but I'll do what I can because <laughs> I love you. That's what it's all about. Giving is all about love. So he goes on. Actually, it was before all the verse 8. He says, starts with this. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. The Amplified says, that and that only will he reap. Ooh. So if we look at our harvest, <laughs> and we go, not liking that harvest. <laughs> he says, there is a way out. Now, the, the context is still loving each other and taking care of each other. So basically, when it comes to taking care of the body and acting in love, we can expect to receive a harvest of whatever we plant. In other words, 
whatever you do in love, it can't help but come back to you. Now see, now that's a not good offering speech. <laughs> what you do in love cannot help but come back to you because that is the way God works. Verse 8 again. For he that soweth to his flesh shall reap of the flesh corruption. That means nothing good. <laughs> but he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap, harvest, zoe life. I love the literal translation, which is the zoe life of God perpetually. Sometimes when we see the word everlasting, we think after we die. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, 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 we already died. Now we live in the life of God perpetually. The more we know and understand that, the more that perpetual Zoe kind of life shows up in our life. If we understand that to sow to the flesh is to lean on our own understanding, that it's to accept the way the world thinks, or to let our brains promote selfish thoughts and behaviors. Your brain is flesh, and your brain will make you mad in an instant. <laughs> it's not you. You're just driving, minding your own business. Somebody gives you a little hand signal. You're mad. You didn't even have to think about it. <laughs> it's your brain. Your brain says, you're trying to hurt me. You're trying to do me harm. Your brain tries to help you. That's flesh. So a lot of times when we are having these fleshly thoughts, <laughs> we need to understand that that's exactly what they are. That's just flesh. Shut up not listening to you, not returning any hand signals here. <laughs> I bless you in the name of Jesus. Lord, give them wisdom. <laughs> we can choose to override what our brain tells us to do. Anyway, so when we sow the flesh, then we can see that sowing to the flesh can only produce of the flesh. It is this whole seed thing. You can't plant apple seeds and get oranges. And sometimes we would rather plant flesh because that's easier than tell our flesh to shut up. <laughs> I am going to help my neighbor. <laughs> so he says that flesh only brings forth corruption. Corruption means decay and ruin. Anything left to itself in this world decays and becomes ruined. You may have a beautiful $400,000 house, but if you don't take care of it, it won't be worth anything if left to itself. That's the power of the curse at work in the world. And sometimes we do this to ourselves. We don't love ourselves the way we should. See, the whole passage is really about loving <laughs> each other, taking care of each other and ourselves. Sometimes Christians have a really hard time loving themselves so they don't take care of themselves the way they would take care of somebody they love. We sow to the flesh. And then our flesh produces painful situations in our lives. But those painful situations don't come from God, ever. And that's why it's so important for us to sow to the Holy Spirit and to let him love us out of our painful situations and to empower us to love others, even our enemies, <laughs> out of their painful situations. You see, we're all called to love somebody else and to sow into them. God taught me this years ago, because I would have people when I worked at Motorola call me for counseling. <laughs> I'd be on the, on the phone for hours. <laughs> Jesus, I don't have time for this. <laughs> and while I am ministering to them, out of my mouth comes my own answers. You can't lose by loving. It's not possible. So. When we sow to the Holy Spirit consistently, and that is what the sowing means, because, you know, you and I, we sow to the flesh every once in a while, but there's not an immediate harvest, okay? So not everything grows to the size of a tree. So there is grace there. Praise God, there is grace there. <laughs> but when he says whatever we do consistently will show up in our life. So if we consistently love each other, if we consistently take care of each other, if we consistently sow the power and presence of God. A seed is a huge tree and lots more, and that is our God. He says, you just trust me enough to love, and you will see my love explode in your life like an apple tree. You can get everything you need from our Father because of his great love. 
And he says, to activate love, you step out in faith. You step out in faith and love. So, when we sow to the Holy Spirit consistently, he brings forth the harvest of God's kind and quality of life. I love that. God's kind and quality of life. You see, he doesn't want us living like the world. He says, I took you out of that kingdom, put you in a brand new kingdom. So if you learn, if you get trained, if you get instruction on how this kingdom works, you can live in that kingdom and have the fruit of that kingdom come forth in your life instead of the kingdom of the world. And we can even reap, harvest, the very life, the Zoe kind of life into our bodies and lives simply by sowing to the Spirit, which means just following him around, basically. <laughs> so to me, it sounds like the Apostle Paul is saying, look, we know everybody sows to the flesh ever so often. It's going to happen. It's, we're humans. And unfortunately, we can't necessarily stop the harvest of those seeds, but we are not at the mercy of those seeds either. We can start immediately sowing to the Holy Spirit and change our harvest. We have a say in what happens in our life. He said, I have given you all power and authority. God gave it to him and he gave it to us. How many of us really believe we have all power and authority? We know we have it in our head. <laughs> but do we believe it in our heart? That I can speak to mountains and they will move because my Father loves me. Not because I'm so good and so great. Because my daddy loves me and he stands right behind me and he says, whatever comes out of your mouth, I'm going to do. Not because my faith is so great. Remember I told you about my dog, my God dog? Someday that's going to be in a message. I'm going to put a little bit right here. God, for lack of a better term, bent over backwards, which he's not a person, so it doesn't really make sense. But, but you know what I mean. <laughs> he bent over backwards and gave me exactly the dog I wanted. There's like 10 different things that I wanted that there was no way in the natural I could get it. And you know what? I didn't believe for it. I didn't believe for it. God gave me words and I kept looking into those words and going, kinda sounds like this is what you're saying. So I just kept writing down what he said to me. Kinda sounds like that's what you're saying. I didn't believe, I didn't have great faith, but my father loves me and loves to do me good. <laughs> my father gave me above and beyond all that I really thought was possible. Not because I was so good, not because my faith was so great, but because his love is that great. His person is that good. He says, all you gotta do is listen. All you gotta do is follow. And I will do exceedingly abundantly above all that you can ask or think. Why? Because I love you. <laughs> now, usually when we talk about sowing and reaping, there is an element of time. Usually we sow and 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 we sow and, we sow, and then suddenly harvest. <laughs> Just like that. <laughs> but there's this time. You see, we don't sow and then wait. You don't be waiting. Keep sowing. Because when you sow, you believe. When you step out in faith, you're believing. And when you're giving and you're loving and you start praying for people at the gas station, next thing you know, you're winning someone to Jesus at Walmart. All you got to do is follow. Keep sowing and change the harvest. And that's why he says, let us not be weary in well-doing. You know, he didn't say, let us not be weary in following the Holy Spirit. You see, following the Holy Spirit will lead you into well-doing. <laughs> For in due season we shall harvest, reap, we shall harvest if we faint not. Sometimes our harvest, whatever the harvest is that we're looking for or wanting, it's right around the corner. It's right around the corner. And we're like, why aren't you being faster, God? <laughs> Don't faint. Don't faint. Don't give up. Don't quit. It's right around the corner. Sometimes it takes time to reverse what our flesh has produced. <laughs> but just as surely as the flesh produced what we sowed, just 
as absolutely true and can be counted on. The Holy Spirit will produce the life of God in us, in our lives, in our bodies, in our finances, in our relationships. He can't help but overflow and touch everything in our lives. So my point is, sometimes what feels like punishment for the stuff that we've done or not done is actually just reaping what we've sowed. But God's not interested in us reaping of the flesh. He wants to intervene, and he does intervene because he loves us, and he helps us to reap of the Spirit. In order to do that, we need to hear his instructions, his corrections through the Holy Spirit, which are always, always, always an expression of his love for us. And then we cooperate with those instructions and corrections. Our Father is always, 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 always helping us to avoid and to destroy the fruit of the flesh. In these scriptures in Galatians, it is evident that walking according to the flesh is the opposite of walking in love. Walking in love is the equivalent of walking and sowing in the Spirit. So sometimes when you're like, well, how do I walk in the Spirit today? Who can you love? Who would you like me to love today? Sometimes it's your spouse. <laughs> sometimes it's your kids <laughs> sometimes it's your neighbor but he always has somebody that he wants us to love everything that God does is motivated by his love for us God is love and in him there is no darkness of any kind he can't be unjust he can't be unkind and he can't be unloving. That's who he is. Love is who he is. But when we look at the scripture like Proverbs 13, 24, we can get the idea that God, as our Father, wants to beat the living daylights out of us <laughs> because he loves us so much. <laughs> and it's simply not true. Again, Proverbs 13, 24, he that spareth his rod hateth his son. Now that sounds like you should be expecting if my father loves me, he's going to knock me up alongside the head. That's not what this is about. But he that loveth his son, basically, chastises, disciplines, corrects, instructs, and trains him three times early. When we read the Old Testament, we have to remember that we are now under a different covenant. The Old Covenant was a covenant based on fear. Fear of punishment or fear of the curse. It was the same thing to them. In Exodus chapter 20, verses 18 through 20, it says this. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. It sounds funny, huh? Don't be afraid. I want you to be afraid. <laughs> what are you saying? Don't be afraid you're going to die, but be afraid of how much power you see, that this can be used for you or against you. And okay, now there's a reason for that. See, the Israelites were like little children who obeyed because they were afraid of what would happen to them if they didn't. They were controlled by fear, not love. And that's the way God wanted it for them because he knew the only way to keep them safe was to instill fear in them while at the same time teaching them that he loves them. It's like little children. A little child will not obey you because he loves you. <laughs> it won't happen. When my daughter was about 13 years old, I remember this, I asked her to clean off the kitchen table. 13. <laughs> Way too old to spank. <laughs> Her response was, why do I always have to do this? Why don't you make someone else do this? This isn't fair. I got 20 minutes of this isn't fair. <laughs> but a few years ago, when she was at my house for dinner, I said, honey, will you help me clear off the table? Oh, sure, Ma. What changed? Our relationship. You see, as an adult, we are friends. And parent and child. See, there is something that happens when you grow up. Even though you are your mama's baby, she can't treat you that way. 
Because <laughs> that one won't have any part of that. <laughs> but it's true. When children grow up, we treat them as friends, as equals. Didn't Jesus say to his disciples, you are my friends? Yeah, see, we become friends. God treats us like adults, not like stubborn 13-year-olds. <laughs> and so when he wants to teach us and train us, there is no pain in it. He doesn't bring the pain of this world to try to use against us like a spanking. Now, when she was 13, did she obey? Yeah, she did what she was told. I heard about it, but she did what she was told. Why? Because there was going to be a consequence if she didn't. That's the old covenant. Yes, there was love there, but is that why they did what they were supposed to do? No. They did what they were supposed to do to avoid pain. And if you look at how successful that was, it wasn't very successful. Out of the 12 tribes of Israel, at the end of the Old Testament, there's one and a half tribes left, Benjamin and Judah. That's all that's left. Everyone else is scattered because they were all running amok. <laughs> Fear didn't keep them. Fear didn't train them who God was. It was the only way he could instill in them that if you stay under my covenant, it's like a big umbrella, you can go out into the world and get hurt. You can sow to the flesh and get hurt. Or you can stay in your covenant and be blessed. They didn't have the personal relationship that we have in the new covenant. They were like little children who didn't know the heart of their father. And so the only way he could keep them safe as much as he could was to paddle them <laughs> because he loved them. They were like small children. And so when we read the Old Testament, we don't go there and go, God, this is how God's going to train us or, or teach us. No, that's the Old Covenant for small children. <laughs> that's not New Covenant for his child, his grown adult sons and his bride. He treats us like adults. The New Covenant enables us to know God as a loving Heavenly Father who trains and instructs us on how to operate in the kingdom realities. Because sometimes we don't. <laughs> we operate in what we know. And changing somebody's mind is the hardest thing to do. So he wants us to learn to operate in the kingdom realities and bring forth our Father's goodness and loving kindness into our own lives and into the lives of others. In Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 through 26, the Apostle Paul explains this difference between the Old and the New Covenant. Starting with verse 23. But before faith came... We. Who's the we? You know what? It's not me. A lot of times when we look into the scripture, we just pick out a scripture and we say, oh, we were kept under, oh no, we weren't. We as Gentiles. <laughs> we as not Jews. <laughs> he was talking about the Jews. Paul is saying, before faith came, the Jews were kept. They were guarded and protected. How? Under the law. They were shut up, they were confined, and made safe until faith would be revealed later. He says, wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified, declared innocent by faith. But after that, faith has come, we are no longer under the schoolmaster. For if ye are children, and the world there is actually Helios, sons. For ye are all sons of God, by faith in Christ Jesus. He talks of our position. So he's trying to get them to understand God doesn't deal with us in the new covenant the way he dealt with them in the old covenant. God had to spank them because they were all small. <laughs> they were all rebellious. That's the only way he could orchestrate in their life. That's not true in the new covenant. In the new covenant, he moves inside. And he orchestrates from in here. He has a personal love relationship with us. You see, everybody in this world is motivated by one or two things. Fear or love. That's what motivates us. Fear or love. God doesn't want us to be motivated by fear. He wants us to be motivated by how great his love is for us and for everybody else. The word schoolmaster is the Greek word pahi deogos. If you look it up in the Thayer's um, Dictionary, the definition is this. A tutor a guardian and guide of boys. Among the Greeks and the Romans, the name was applied to a trustworthy slave 
who was charged with the duty of supervising the life and the morals of boys belonging to the better class. The boys were not allowed so much as to step out of the house without them before arriving at the age of manhood. The point I'm trying to be here is that this is exactly what the law was for the Israelites. It was a schoolmaster. It taught them what to do and how to do it and when to do it until they grew up. When they became of age, they no longer needed that. There is lots of good things in the Old Testament. We don't throw out the Old Testament. <laughs> but we are not under the law for our salvation. The law is for those who are lawless, those who don't know what is right and wrong. That's not who we are. We have the Holy Spirit. <laughs> our nature is now love. And we understand anything that doesn't come from love doesn't come from God. So anyway, this law was like this guardian. If you stayed within the lines, you were safe from the curse, which produced physical hardships, which would hopefully make you rethink your choices. It didn't seem to work really well with the Israelites, but what we see throughout the Old Covenant is that Israel was always, always, always going astray. They were like little kids who knew they could get a spanking for coloring outside the lines of their covenant, but they didn't care. They didn't know and understand the love of their father. So, under the Old Covenant, everybody was basically treated like a young child. Blessing for good behavior, cursing for bad behavior. But under the New Covenant, we are treated as adult sons of God. We have been placed in a position where we were to take over the work of the Son on the earth. That's why he has given us the keys to the kingdom. We, no matter our age, have the same rights, privileges, and responsibilities that Jesus has. We no longer earn God's blessing like small children. We live in his blessing. We are already blessed. And the blessing is at work on our behalf, even if we don't know it. It doesn't matter what kind of trouble we get ourselves into or what kind of trouble Satan or the world throws at us. A lot of times we think, oh, why did this happen? Why did that happen? What did I do? Sometimes when you are doing exactly the right things, guess what happens? Satan tries to stop you. Satan tries to stop you. We have been blessed and empowered to prosper. That's what blessing means. I am empowered to prosper. No matter where we are or what we've done, we have been empowered to prosper in the name of Jesus. And the more we understand how much we are loved and provided for already, the more we will trust in our Father's love and provision. And the more we trust him, the more we see him and his power show up in our lives. The new covenant is about a relationship with God based on love and faith, not fear and rule keeping. Now, if this is true, and I believe it is, then what about Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6, which says this, For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. That sounds pretty dangerous. <laughs> See, he loves me and is going to beat the living tar out of me. <laughs> Should we really expect God to flog us and beat us within an inch of our lives just so he can train us in holiness? No. So, how do we explain this scripture then? <laughs> well, let's start with who this book is written to. It was written to the Hebrews, the believing, the unbelieving, and the contemplating Hebrews. The early church was all Jews. And as Jewish people came to faith in Christ, bad things started to happen to them from the religious. We didn't want to accept the new covenant. So they were those who just weren't sure about all this new covenant stuff was about and how it worked. Imagine this now. You have been raised in Judaism. There's a rule for going to the bathroom correctly. There is a rule for when you can and cannot have relations. There are rules that dictate everything you do. Now, all of a sudden, none of those rules count towards making me approved of God. Your whole life has been performance. Your whole life, if you love the Lord, you want to do all of the rules and keep yourself, quote unquote, clean. Now, all of a sudden, Jesus throws out the old covenant. But you, that's all you know. That was hard for them. It would be like whatever political denomination you are, suddenly finding out 
it's the wrong one. <laughs> Whichever one it is. <laughs> it would be really hard to wrap your brain around that. It's like, no, I'm not going to be like them. That's what it was like for them. So there were those who were against Christ, those who had received Christ, and those who were thinking about receiving Christ. There were those who knew that according to the scripture, it's got to be him. But if I accept Christ, they're going to kick me out of the synagogue. They won't buy my goods. They won't let me go to their stores. It was persecution. And so this letter was written to them. That's important. For a Jew, being Jewish was their identity. It was all they knew. Now all of a sudden the new covenant came and they didn't know how to change. And it wasn't all written down for them like it is for us. So that's why the writer of Hebrews wrote this. One of the ways that the new covenant is different from the old covenant is that God is no longer far away. You see, most Gentiles in the world who aren't saved, they think of God as far away. If they believe in God, they think he's way far away, <laughs> you know, doing little to nothing. <laughs> but in the new covenant, he comes to live on the inside of us and make us new creations that are actually sons. This is a whole different mentality from what they're used to. They're used to a slave mentality. They're used to being a head and a servant. Moses was a servant. He was a great servant, but Jesus was the son. And the son is greater than the servant. This was all very new to them. The idea that they could receive the never-ending supply of the Holy Spirit, the thought that they never had to go to the temple to sacrifice ever again, really, can Jesus' blood really take away all my sins? Maybe I should get a lamb just in case. <laughs> case Jesus, you know, missed one or two. This was their thinking. How can one lamb, one sacrifice, take away all sin forever for everyone? They had never heard of such a thing. They knew that God was going to bring a new covenant, but it was so much bigger than they had ever imagined. So when it came to God training and teaching the new Jewish believers, there was a lot that needed to be corrected <laughs> because they were still mixing old beliefs with new beliefs. And you know what? Believers today are doing the same thing. They take some of that old covenant and they try to mix it in with their new covenant. If I give to the poor, God will bless me. And the new covenant, God says, what you give doesn't count unless it comes from love. <laughs> he says, you can give your body to be burned, but unless you love, it doesn't mean anything because that's who he is. So everything was different for these people. Now, you need to know that when you start to read the, the book of Hebrews, because Hebrews was not written to us. It was written to Hebrews <laughs> and where they were at that time. So if we start with that understanding and we look at Hebrews 12, starting with verse 1, it says this, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin. What is the sin that besets every single person? Unbelief. It's not smoking or drinking or cussing. The sin that is the root of all other sin is unbelief. That was their problem. Unbelief that one sacrifice was sufficient for all sin. Never heard of such a thing. So what these new believers and the ones who were contemplating being believers, they had to change their way of thinking completely. And he says the thing that beset them really was unbelief, which does so easily beset us. Get yourself in a hard place. Guess what's going to happen? <laughs> Get yourself in a whole lot of pain. Guess what's going to happen? Unbelief comes up because it comes from the natural realm. He says, let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus. What? <laughs> Looking unto Jesus? They had always looked to the law. They didn't even look to Moses. They looked to the law. The law was their life. And now you're saying, Jesus is my life? That everything revolves around Jesus? <laughs> Looking unto Jesus. Yes, the author and the finisher of our what? Faith, the opposite of unbelief. Jesus is greater than our unbelief. This is telling them, you can't look to the law. You can't look to being good. You can't look to your giving. You can't look to your good works. You can't look to any of that for approval from God. You can only look unto Jesus, 
who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. And he took us with us. Verse 3, For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied in faith in your minds. What is he saying here? See, remember, this isn't written to us. It's written to them. Who were the contradiction of sinners? It was not the Gentiles. It was the Jews. It was the Pharisees. It was the super religious who said, you're bad, you're wrong. (laughs) See, that's what the Jews were experiencing. When they did accept Christ, they were being kicked out of everything else. So he says, don't look at that. Look at the truth of how Jesus handled it. And he says, you have not resisted unto blood, striving against sin. What is that sin? Unbelief. Unbelief. And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as children, as sons. Phuios. My son, despise thou not the chastening, which actually means to be tutored. You know when you're having a hard time with a subject, you get yourself a tutor. Somebody who knows the subject that can help you with it. Yes, <laughs> that's what God does for us. My son, despise not thou the chastening, the tutoring, the training in righteousness of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked. In other words, when we tell you you're wrong, most people don't like to be told they're wrong. You're really offended if someone tells us we're wrong when we think we're right. But the Jews had so much they had to change. And the truth is the body of Christ has the same challenge to believe that Jesus alone, Jesus plus nothing else, is sufficient for your salvation. Verse 6, For whom the Lord loveth, agape loveth, he chasteneth, he tutors, he trains, and scourges every son, every adult son, whom he receiveth. Something's wrong with that. Does that sound right? No, it doesn't make any sense at all. And it sends an unintended message that God, because he loves you, will bring painful and horrible things into your life. Because to be scourged was to be destroyed. Jesus was scourged. That is not how God treats his sons. What Jesus did, Jesus did for us. He took our scourge. So there's no reason for God to scourge us anymore. So what's wrong with this verse? (laughs) Jesus said that the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. Not Jesus. Jesus came to give us life and life more abundant. He didn't come to beat the daylights out of us. There is no abundance of life in being scourged. There is a huge difference in being corrected and being beaten half to death. So when we come to this verse, there are two ways we can correct our understanding of it. First, we can go to the original verse in the Old Testament. Verses 5 and 6 are actually, and scholars know this. Scholars know that this is a quote from the Old Testament. Okay, let's read it. My son, despise not the chasing of the Lord, neither be weary for his correction. For whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth, even as a father himself and the son in whom he delighteth. See any spankings in there? No. They know the New Testament is a quote from the Old, but they won't correct it. They know it, but they say, this is the earliest manuscript, it's got to be right. When they know it's a quote from the Old Covenant. What I like about the Old Covenant version is that it says, in the son whom he delighteth, it means in the son whom he is well pleased with. You see, our Father is well pleased with Jesus, and because we are in him, he is well pleased with us. Obviously, something went very wrong, because this is not what the New Testament says. The scholars, there are a few that say, it's very obvious, it was a copy. This isn't the original document. This is a copy, and they know it's a copy, but they won't fix it. (laughs) because they don't have anything earlier to say we should correct it. But we can look at it and go, gee, kind of obvious. Somebody wrote something down wrong, but they don't change it. And unfortunately, believers are reading this scripture in the New Testament and thinking God wants to hurt them to make them better. When the only way we ever get better is if we know his love. He wants to love us into better, not hurt us into better. When they translated the Hebrew into Greek, they used a Greek translation of the Old Testament. In other words, when that was copied, whoever copied the original book of Hebrews, 
they took a Greek copy of the Old Testament and used that to translate. Unfortunately, this copy, the Greek copy, it was translated by Jewish scholars, right? They're the ones that are supposed to know what the Hebrew means. That's where the translation changed. I'll show you this in the Greek. Verse 12, For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, and he whips every son whom he welcomes. Doesn't sound very welcoming. <laughs> That's the same verse as in whom he delights, in whom he is well pleased. They didn't go to the Hebrew to find the original of what it meant. They took a Jewish scholar's idea, mistake, and translated from that, and that's why we get this. That's why we get a false doctrine that God is mean and will beat the living daylights out of you if you don't toe the line. When he really said, look, I am well pleased with you. I am well pleased with you. I will heal you. I will help you. You are strong. You're not weak. You're who I say you are. Not what some Jewish scholar messed up. <laughs> what I've just told you is completely true. But there are those scholars who say, no, no, no. If you're going to fix this a dilemma, you're going to have to do it the way it is. You can't change it. God is so good. <laughs> they can't tell smart God. <laughs> the word for scourge in the Old Covenant is the word bickereth, and it's translated scourge. One time. This word is used one time in the Old Covenant, and it's mistranslated. The Jewish scholars of today look at this and say, that's not right. That's mistranslated. When they translated it into English, they translated it scourge. It doesn't mean that. See, sometimes when translations, they don't help you. They only hurt you. <laughs> you can go and verify what I'm telling you. They know that this is the truth, but they refuse to change the scripture so that it would be correct. The only place that word is used is in Leviticus 19, verse 20. And it says this, Whoever lieth carnally with a woman, that is a bondmaid. In other words, this is a slave. And she's betrothed to a husband. She's not redeemed. She's not free. She doesn't have her own free will. She has to do whatever somebody tells her to do. So it says, if that woman has relations with a man who's not her betrothed, she shall be scourged. Does that sound right to you? <laughs> She's the one that's been violated and we're going to beat her to a pulp? No. And it says, and they shall not be put to death because she was not free. Because fornication, you were put to death. Okay? What it actually means is to deeply inquire. I have for you, from the Jewish law of association, Jewish scholars of today, it says, the author rejects the recent claim that the noun, bikaret, in Leviticus 19.20, is to be explained in the sense of indemnity. It means to have compensation for your loss. As the Akkadian bakru, which is the root word, never has this meaning. The previously held inquiry is still the best interpretation for the crux of the law. Jewish scholars of today said that's been translated wrong. It never meant to beat the living daylights out of somebody. It meant to inquire deeply. Do you think God's going to inquire deeply into your life? Do you think he's going to get up all up in your business? Yes, he is. Why? Because of his great love. God does not scourge or beat his children. Because too many of us don't understand what Jesus accomplished on the cross. We believe these things. Instead of going, God, this can't be right. Show me how on earth this is wrong. Because the authorities say that it is right. But if you're willing to do your homework, you can find out what's behind these mistranslations. And there aren't many of them. I'm not telling you to doubt the veracity of the Bible. The original scriptures are inerrant. All of our sins have been dealt with on the cross, and God is not imputing our sins to us. So why exactly would he scourge a believer? He wouldn't. All of our sins were punished and scourged in the body of Jesus. This is a mistranslation that leads believers to accept the works of the enemy as a part of God's plan for them. They accept sickness and disease and poverty and lack as being God's will for them, which, of course, it's not. Suffering doesn't produce righteousness or righteous living. Righteous living comes from being made right by the blood of Jesus. That's why when God corrects us, he uses his words, not rods. 
All he needs to do is to change our mind because everything else on the inside has already become new. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. New. All things are past. All the old is gone. We are not little children. We don't need to be spanked. We are adults, and we are new adults. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, I'm closing. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and instruction in righteousness. There are no spankings. There are no spankings. That the man of God may be perfect, fully furnished for good works. We, are, we have been given everything we need to live a life of love. Like the early Jewish believers, we have to have our minds renewed to the new covenant of grace because it's not anything like the old. In the old covenant, people had to produce righteous living out of a fear-based system. And of course, it didn't work. They were always coming under the curse of the law and God was having to use exterior pressures like spanking a rebellious child in order to convince them to stay under his protection. But they never stayed. For the most part, they never knew or understood how much God loved them. We can learn a lot from the Old Testament, but when we read it, we have to remember, that's not my covenant. That's not how God deals with me today. It's a brand new world in the new covenant of grace, and it's all about being loved, receiving his, his approval, and then living out of that love and changing the world. Amen? Father God, I thank you that you have given us everything we need for life, the God kind of life, and godliness, our God-likeness. You have given us your spirit. You have given us yourself. You have given us everything we need to become and walk victorious in this life. Father God, I thank you that you have not left us short. You have not allowed us to have any deficiency. You have given us everything, everything. And most importantly, you have given us your love, and your approval. It is true that we can say of ourselves, my Father is well pleased in who I am because you said it first. Father, we thank you for the new covenant. It changes everything. In Jesus' name.